Let's pray before we dive in. Lord, you are God. You created the heavens and the earth. You put everything in place. You made the world to be lived in, not to be a place of empty chaos. You say you are the Lord and there is no other. And yet we live in a day in which there are many voices declaring, I am the Lord. And some of them saying, I'm, I'm one of many. And that conviction is widespread among, certainly among Americans. The idea that there is one God for this group, one God for that group, so forth and so on. That no one God has the market cornered on faith. And the scripture tells us again and again, you told the children of Israel, the gods that they were whittling out of spruce and pine and molding out of gold and silver were deaf and mute. They weren't gods. They were things, objects that had no power, could not create and could not sustain and could not save. And yet most of us live well within earshot of people who are convinced that there are all kinds of gods. Maybe not gold ones today, but there are all kinds of gods. And you can, it's like going to the mall and picking out a particular shirt. Your shirt's different from someone else's, and that's okay. And yet the consequences of this, of this satanic lie are lethal and eternal. And I pray as we think about uh, just our culture, as we think about people that we know, that we're going to come in contact with who hold to these falsehoods, that we not simply shake our heads and go on our way, but our hearts would burn with longing to help give people the truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we dive into uh, our sermon, I want to share a couple of things <clears throat> with you that aren't germane to the sermon this morning, but they are pertinent to the whole series that we're doing on apologetics. Some of you are familiar with uh, YouTubers that go by the name of Rhett and Link. And uh, these guys are uh, serious in the YouTube business. They have a number of uh, channels. And their main channel has 15 and a half million subscribers, and they have over 5 billion views. So they're not small potatoes. Um, a lot of young people are uh, fascinated with them. Uh, they do some wild and crazy things. And just in the last two weeks, they have been making, uh, I think, a total of four podcasts to tell the story of their deconstruction of faith. It used to be we call someone who said, I'm a Christian here, and then down the road they say, no, I'm not a Christian, and we call it deconversion. Uh, the word today is deconstruction. And I watched most of uh, Rhett's main um, 
podcast this week of his deconversion. And there were a couple of things that I wanted to draw out and, and make some observations or reactions to. He says, in 2006, I read a book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. Francis Collins is the, <clears throat> excuse me, he's the director of the Biologos Foundation, uh, which is an organization that attempts to um, say that evolution and Christianity, there's no quarrel between the two. I mean, full, full on blown, full blown Darwinism. And uh, he says, I read a book called The Language of God. <clears throat> this is the kind of thing I lived for. Um, I loved it when someone with a scientific mind, note that, who was respected by the world, note that, would come out and do this. Make it reasonable to be a Christian, to show that your faith was reasonable and smart people believed this. Now, this was the beginning of his journey out of Christianity. Um, it, was, it would be an eight-year journey, 2014. As he described it, he jumped out of the boat of Christianity and into the water. And what was interesting and tragic at the same time is he, he spoke about, at that time, jumping into the water and dragging his wife and children into the water with him. And I thought, wow. Do you hear yourself? But he's reading this book and, and he is loving it. They, this person has a scientific mind. They're respected by the world. And it's, it's, it's a reminder to him that there are some smart people who believe this, meaning Christianity. So here's my first reaction. This is for us. Only those who are comfortable being called a primitive will follow Jesus today and in the days ahead. Only those who are willing to be called a throwback, a primitive, uh, a redneck, an old-fashioned person, an unsophisticated person, only those people are going to be willing to follow Jesus. If you haven't experienced the kind of um, being looked down upon because you believe Jesus and all that goes with it, Hold on, you will be. In the comments section under <clears throat> this podcast, there was a woman who wrote this. I'd like to add that when I was a teen, I was literally kicked out of my own church for, quote, asking too many questions, unquote. I was so confused about certain things in the book, I assume she means the Bible, and things didn't add up for me. And when I asked those questions, I was told, quote, it's not your place to question God or your faith. It's your job to just keep quiet and obey, unquote. That never set well with me. And I went on a journey of my own and found my own being of faith. I guess she means in, in her own mind, she came up with her own faith or she was her own God. And if you were here when we started this series, we talked about... <clears throat> The idea that there are um, many Christians who struggle with doubt about their faith or certain aspects of their faith uh, over the life of following Jesus. And that our goal should be to help one another through those times, not silence one another. 
And I'm hoping that if you've been here any length of time, at least four or five years, you know that that wouldn't fly at Keystone. <laughs> that if you go to talk to people about your doubts, that you won't be told to shut up and don't think about those kinds of things. And so this is my second reaction to what I saw this week. I want to encourage you, if you're a part of Keystone, that you would doubt among us rather than away from us. In other words, you would wrestle with your doubts among your brothers and sisters, with your brothers and sisters, rather than running away and having to do that in a corner. Why, why would you want to do that on your own? I can guarantee you that you become far more vulnerable and a prey of the enemy on your own than hashing it out with your brothers and sisters, Christ. Doubt among us rather than away from us. All right. Those are just a couple of reactions to, I, my heart breaks, and I was talking to Shane this morning a little bit about this, and he made the comment, you know, a lot of that happening, a lot of deconstruction stories. Uh, some of you know Josh Harris um, last summer. He and his wife split up, and within uh, days he announced via social media that I'm no longer a Christian. This is a man who was pastor of a megachurch in Maryland uh, for years, a man who wrote I Kissed Aiding Goodbye, um, a, a serious player, if you will, in evangelical Christianity. I talked about Marty Sampson from Hillsong, who also deconstructed last year. There's a lot of this happening. And it's interesting, as you chart the course of people's move from faith to non-faith, there's, there's a, a number of common denominators. That they're basic stuff that probably everybody has to wrestle with at one point or another. Is the Bible true? How do I get around God telling the, the Israelites to kill all the Amalekites, men, women, and children? How, how do I get around the, the idea that we have no original copies of the, of the New Testament letters and people are telling us all the time that you can't trust them that surely they couldn't have been passed down through the centuries with integrity ordinary kinds of questions so evolution been and so forth and so it's really the things that we're talking about uh, these weeks uh, are matter because if you don't have questions about them now there's a good chance you will somewhere down the line if you don't have questions about them, it's, it's a good chance that your kids already have questions about them. In fact, this article that I read um, that kind of put me on to what was happening with Rhett and Link was written by the um, National Director of Awana Ministries, Kids Ministry, throughout a lot of churches. And he found out about this. He was a fan of Rhett and Link, but his 17-year-old son came to him and said, Dad, we need to talk. He said, you know, the kind of voice where you, you, your, your heart sinks and you think, oh, what's this going to be? And he began to share all the, all the questions that were bubbling up in his heart now because of what he was seeing Rhett and Link say. And so um, hopefully these weeks are beneficial. One of the things that I've come to realize as a, we've been working through the, this topic is I, I could add another half dozen sermons like that and I'm tempted to, but we need to wrap this up at some point. Uh, so we've got two more after today, uh, but there's a, probably another good six of uh, different topics that we should talk about. But today, our topic, uh, the question for our topic is, is Christianity the only way? Is 
Christianity the only way, meaning the only way to God, to be reconciled uh, with God, the only way to have eternal life. And this has been the teaching uh, of the Christian church for 2,000 years. But in the day in which we live, this sounds horribly exclusive. Uh, there's a, our move is toward inclusion. We want to include everybody in everything. And some of this is coming out of uh, what I would say are some good instincts. Um, there's a uh, desire to be uh, more diverse and, and the diversity movement has been, uh, I think, driven by some good instincts, certainly when it comes to thinking um, that our ethnicity is better than someone else's or our culture is better than someone else's or our country is better than someone else's. Um, it, there is a good instinct to think about no other ethnicities, no other countries, no other cultures. Are, they have their value and um, they have their good things and we in turn have bad things about ours as well. So there's, there's some good instincts that I think are driving this interest in being far more inclusive about a variety of things. But when it comes to faith, we're, we're wrestling with now not what's uh, good, better, or best. We're dealing with what is true and what is not true, uh, what's false. And this is fundamentally a problem in our culture because we, are being, we have been heavily influenced by postmodernism, which basically says there is no objective truth. What you believe is true for you, that's fine. But what I believe, even though it's, it's different, totally different, and even in conflict with what you, you believe, is true for me. And so we can both have our own truths. And of course, 60 years ago, this would have, people would have gone, huh? No, 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 you, you, you can't have it both ways. And probably there's no area um, um, where this debate um, or argument is more common than in the area of faith, in the area of religion. And so people would ask uh, us, you Christians, you think you have the only way? Do you really think that God is unwilling to accept Buddhists who might be kinder than you are? Unwilling to accept Hindus who pray not to one God, but to many gods? Uh, or to Muslims who Maybe pray more than you Christians do. They pray, after all, five times a day. They get up at, at four o'clock in the morning for their first prayer. Who fast an entire month during Ramadan. I mean, these people are serious about that. Are you really, you really think that only the way you prescribe or understand faith is the only way that anyone can be acceptable to God? And what's of greater concern to me than the culture talking about this are the churches. Even, even churches are not so sure anymore. So for example, a number of years ago, they surveyed all the pastors in the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA denomination. And, uh, let me just, that's a reminder to me. When I talked this morning about different faiths, I'm not talking about Presbyterians or Methodists or Mennonites or um, Anglicans or even Catholics, I'm, I'm talking about other non-Christian faiths, I'm not talking about denominations, we're talking about non-Christian religions. So anyway, a number of years ago, they polled all the PCUSA pastors and asked them to respond to this question, do you agree or disagree? Only followers of Jesus Christ can be saved. 45% of them said, I disagree with that statement. These are the pastors that get up every Sunday morning and preach to the people and teach them and disciple them. 
and they disagree, almost half in one denomination disagreed with that statement that only followers of Jesus Christ can be saved. A number of years ago, a Methodist bishop by the name of Melvin Talbert was on Larry King Live. He's, um, uh, Talbert has passed away since. But he said that Muslims are on their way, meaning on their way to God, uh, as just as certain as I'm on my way. And what we need to do is to be tolerant with each other, amen, and not assume that our way is the only way. And I would stop there and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no Christian ever says, I assume my way is the only way. We've, we've been given revelation from God. We've been told that this is the only way. We don't assume it. It's not just something we conjured up in our minds. God's making the claim in here that it's the only way. He says, I believe my God is large enough to be inclusive of all human beings who were created in God's image, and that includes those religions that are not Christians. And then one last example. We want to be an equal opportunity critic here. American Baptist Church in Evanston, Illinois, Lake Street Church. These are things that that, that they have put out there, publicized what they believe. We confess that we have stepped away from Christ's path Whenever we have failed to practice love of God, amen, love of neighbor, amen, and self, or have claimed Christianity is the only way even as we claim it to be our way. In other words, they're saying we have sinned when we have declared that Christianity is the only true way. By calling ourselves progressive, we mean that we are Christians who recognize the faithfulness of other people who have other names for the way to God's realm and acknowledge that their ways are true for them as our ways are true for us. And just as a footnote on those examples, some of you are going to pack up and move somewhere else down the road a few years, maybe 10 years. And you're gonna go looking for a church. Don't pick your church based on a denominational label or based on how well you like the preacher or how well you like the music, you better pick your church based on what they teach and what they believe. Because anymore, the signs, the denominational labels, and everything else, that's not compelling. It doesn't tell you all you need to know. About 2,500 years ago, a parable uh, came out of, the, uh, of India. Uh, it's been brought out in various forms, various areas, told a little bit differently from place to place to place. It's the parable of the elephant, and probably some of you have heard it. It has become very, uh, a very much a, a, a parable of interest for Americans in, I would say, the last 30 years or so, because they think it speaks to religious faiths, plural. The elephant and the blind men. So an elephant is brought to six blind men who've never heard of an elephant before, never seen an elephant before, and they are asked to describe what kind of creature it is. And so the six men scatter around the elephant and each of them touches a different part of the elephant and draws a different conclusion about what the elephant is like. So one man holds on to the trunk and he says, well, the elephant is like a snake. 
Another blind man runs his hands over this massive ear and he says, the elephant is like a fan. Still another one puts his arms around these massive legs and he says, the elephant is like a pillar or a a tree trunk. Another one leans against the side of an elephant and of course it's hard and unyielding and unmoving. He says, the elephant is like a wall. Another one is at the back end and he has his hand on the tail and he says, the elephant is like a rope. And the last blind man has his hands on the tusks and he says, the elephant is smooth and hard and pointed like a spear. Now the king or the raja is sitting on his balcony watching all this transpire and he says, each of you has a piece of the puzzle. And if you all get together and each of you contribute your piece of the puzzle, you will have the full picture of what an elephant is like. And people look at the parable and say, that's the way religious faith is. If you just put together what you believe about God with what someone else believes about God and what someone else believes about God and what someone else believes about God, you'll have a full and accurate, finally, a full and accurate picture of who God is. The problem with that is for us as Christians, God's revelation, what we believe is God's revelation, says something different. So let's look at John 14, 6. Some of you have this memorized. If you don't, it would be really good to do so. Jesus told him, say it with me if you know it, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, there's a lot of exclusive language in those lines. I am the way. He doesn't say I'm a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life. No one, more exclusive language, can come to the Father except through me. More exclusive language. Now this was not spoken in a corner because when Jesus went back to heaven and the apostles began to minister, they were preaching the same message. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Actually, it started at 11. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in, finish it, no one else. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Again, exclusive language, no one else, no other name. Now, we believe it's true. I believe it's true. And if that's the case, the rest must be false. This could be false. And some others true, but not all others true. Uh, Has anyone in here ever studied logic? In school, you had logic. You had, of course, a few of you. I'm surprised for as young as you are because logic hasn't been taught in schools in years. Three basic laws in logic. One of the most foundational ones is the law of non-contradiction. 
That law states that this can't be true and this if they contradict each other. So for example, those of you ladies who've been pregnant, you were never pregnant and not pregnant at the same time, right? You felt that deeply, right? <laughs> and conversely, if you haven't been pregnant and, and you wanted to be pregnant, you, you were not pregnant at the same time that you weren't pregnant. That's the law of con non-contradiction in practice. So if you weigh 140 pounds, you don't weigh 210 pounds. And if you weigh 210, you don't weigh 140. This can't be true if it contradicts with this. This can't be true at the same time. If you drive truck and you unload your load at a depot in New York City, while you're unloading, you are not at the same time unloading in a, a depot in Chicago. Right, Fred? I'm, I got this right? The law of non-contradiction. And this is... And, and, this kind of thinking is going by the boards in our culture and so it's, it's almost like people don't give it a, a lot of thought when it comes to faith that competing truths can't be both true. One is true and one is not. It, it does feel like in our day that there's some lazy thinking that's going on. Not in some areas, certainly not in science, not in technology, uh, not in trying to build a better society, but when it comes to foundational common sense things, there seems to be more and more lazy thinking. So, I'm finally getting to my main points this morning. I'm going to give you a couple of observations comparing religion to religion. First of all, starting with where we disagree. Hopefully, this will give you some uh, helpful uh, points to make as you talk with other people who, who bought into this idea that all faiths lead the same place. Uh, I'm going to deal with five, the five largest, um, not, that's not true, four largest um, faiths today and one that's not large but is, has a, had a deep impact now through history. Uh, so Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and uh, Judaism, uh, which they're small in numbers thanks in part to Hitler. So where do we disagree? Uh, five questions under this. Uh, first of all, what does your faith believe about uh, does God exist? Does God exist? Be and you might be surprised to note that one of these faiths does not believe in a God. That's Buddhism. So Buddhism would say no. Uh, Christianity and Islam and Judaism would say there, yes, God exists and he is one. He's just one. One, uh, one God. And then Hinduism would say Many gods. Now again, if you're thinking about the law of uh, non-contradiction, if you say there is no God, that faith cannot be reconciled with a faith that says there is a God or, or many gods. They just, you just can't bring them together. And in the same way, a faith that says there's only one God cannot be reconciled with Hinduism that says there's many gods. This was one of the fundamental problems that missionaries to India had for many, many years. It, it, I mean, missionaries have been in India now for um, going on 300 years. But even in, in the late 19, uh, 20th century, missionaries were coming back to the States saying, it's a problem. When we tell uh, Hindus about Jesus, they're like, oh, sure, we'll, we'll just add him to our list of gods and we'll worship him along with Krishna and all the other gods that we have. 
So there's, there's, there's conflict between one faith and the next. Second question under where we disagree, uh, does your faith have sacred writings from God? Sacred writings from God. And the Jews would say, of course, we have the Old Testament that is given to us via the prophets, but it came from God. Islam would say, we have the Quran, and it was given to us through Muhammad, uh, but it was given from God to an angel to Muhammad. And then as Christians, we would say, yes, we received the Bible from God via the prophets, the Old Testament, and the apostles in the New Testament. Hinduism would say, yes, we have sacred writings, the Vedas. Now, they came to them through sages, wise men, and uh, saints. There's Hinduism's um, main gods, a little fuzzy. They're more pantheistic, so they don't really have a personal god. Uh, but they, uh, w- they would say they, they got it through these messengers, but they're a little fuzzy about whether or not God was the originator of them. And then Buddhism would say they have special writings of wisdom from people like the Buddha, uh, but they don't have sacred writings because, after all, they don't believe in God. Third question under where we disagree. Do people have souls? Buddhism would say no. Um, don't have a soul, really. Uh, although they speak of a soul, they don't think of it in the same way that you and I would. All these other four religions would say, yes, people have souls. Fourth, is there an afterlife? Mm, yeah, everybody believes in an afterlife, kind of. Buddhism and Hindu, uh, Hinduism believe in reincarnation. And so there is this perpetual death and rebirth cycle. Death, rebirth, Death, rebirth, death, and rebirth. And, um, of course, this is like if you are good enough, you get reborn as something better. If you're bad and you're a person, you get reborn as a fly or something. And that never goes well. Um, And, of course, in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, the afterlife is determined on some Uh, measurement of reward or judgment fifth question can people of other faiths be saved so if you are a Hindu can people can a Christian be saved in your way of thinking if you are a Muslim can a Buddhist be saved in your way of thinking and the answers go like this Buddhism would say sure other people can be saved of other faiths Hinduism would say sure other people other faiths can be saved I didn't know this until about five years ago that Jews would say, yes, other people can be, other faiths can be saved. I, I met with the local Orthodox rabbi one day, and uh, it was kind of weird. He was very standoffish for, for the first half hour or so that we were talking. I think he was afraid I, came, I was coming to try to convert him. And it took him a little while to settle down. I just kept asking him questions. And then all of a sudden, he said something that just shocked me. And I, when he was done, I, I kind of thought through what he just said. And I said, let me get this straight. If I heard you correctly, you said that somebody like me, who's a Gentile, can be saved without becoming a, a, a Jew, without following the law of Moses. He said, right. You can be saved by keeping the Noahic covenant. 
And there's seven points to that. It includes don't, uh, don't worship idols. It includes don't murder. It includes don't commit adultery. Some things that we would find right in the Ten Commandments. And so three, uh, so three of the faiths that we're talking about would say people of other faiths can be saved. The only two that would say no would be Islam and Christianity. Now, let's talk about where they, I'll say they, non-Christian religions all agree. It's not true of Christianity, but where the other four faiths agree. Every other faith is a self-improvement plan. Across the board, by someone's calculations, there's between 4,200 and 4,300 religions around the world. Not denominations, there's about 43,000 of them. 43,000 Christian denominations or quasi-Christian. But 4,300 religions. And I don't care which one you go to, all of them have some variation on this theme. You work your way to be acceptable to God. It's a self-improvement plan. You be your own savior. You solve your own problems, whether they view them as sins or not. You solve your own problems. That's true of Buddhism. You be good, and you will ultimately reach enlightenment or nirvana. Reincarnation after reincarnation after reincarnation. Hinduism, same. You be good, and you will be reunited eventually with Brahman, which is the universe and all that is in it, the ultimate being. Judaism, you be good and keep Moses' law and you will be rewarded by God. And Islam says you be good and you keep the five pillars of Islam and you will be rewarded by God. And Christianity says something radically different. It says something radically different about who God is, about what the problem is, and what the solution is. So Genesis chapter 1 the creator God, the one we believe in. Again, we could be wrong. I'm just saying, if we're right, this is who God is. He says, Genesis 1, and 7, let us create humanity or people or man in our image. And so God created them in his image, male and female, he created them. Now, God is unbending inflexible about which God to be worshipped. And, and this, is, this is more to the point of why you and I need to be prepared if we're going to keep following Jesus to say, you can label me whatever you want. I'm going to stick with God. He's inflexible. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 in the Ten Commandments God says, you shall have no other, what? Gods before me. Now, lest you think that was kind of a minor issue or is a kind of a minor issue for God, and perhaps he's become far more flexible in his thinking, I'm going to read an entire chapter out of the Old Testament for you this morning. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. And uh, God spoke to uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Then on September 17th, during the sixth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, while the leaders of Judah were in my home, 
the sovereign Lord took hold of me. I saw a figure that appeared to be a man. And from what appeared to be his waist down, he looked like a burning flame. From the waist up, he looked like gleaming amber. He reached out what seemed to be a hand and took me by the hair. I'm thinking, couldn't you just take him by the hand? Then the spirit lifted me up into the sky and transported me to Jerusalem in a vision from God. I was taken to the north gate of the inner courtyard of the temple where there is a large idol that has made the Lord very jealous. This is something that if you don't know about your God, you need to. That God is a jealous God. Now we typically think that's a bad thing. And it can be. So for example, if you're married to a control freak, um, and it's usually a man, and so when you get home from going somewhere, he checks your odometer to see whether you just went to Target or did you go somewhere else and maybe go meet another man. That kind of unhealthy jealousy. But there's a healthy jealousy in your marriage. You don't want your wife being alone somewhere with another man. You don't want your husband texting back and forth with another woman. That's a healthy jealousy. Why? Um, Betty is mine and mine alone. I am hers and hers alone. And God says, I will not share. I, ma I made you. I fashioned you out of the dust of the earth and out of the rib of a man. I made you and by rights you're mine. And so I'm jealous for you. I'm not willing to share you with another. Verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel was there, just as I had seen it before in the valley. And then the Lord said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and there to the north, beside the entrance to the gate near the altar, stood the idol that had made the Lord so jealous. Son of man, he said, do you see what they are doing? Do you see the detestable sins the people of Israel are committing to drive me from my temple? But come and you will see even more detestable sins than these. And then he brought me to the door of the temple courtyard where I could see a hole in the wall. And he said to me, now son of man, dig into the wall. And so I dug into the wall and found a hidden doorway. Go in, he said, and see the wicked and detestable sins they are committing in there. So he's at the temple. So everything that's done, being done there is all about worship. Verse 10, so I went in and saw the walls covered with engravings of all kinds of crawling animals and detestable creatures. These are creatures that weren't supposed to uh, be, be eaten, let alone worshipped. I also saw the various idols worshipped by the people of Israel. Seventy leaders of Israel were standing there with Jezaniah, son of Shaphan, in the center. Each of them held an incense burner from which a cloud of incense rose above their heads. And then the Lord said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the leaders of Israel are doing with their idols in dark rooms? They are saying, The Lord doesn't see us. He has deserted our land. And then the Lord added, Come and I will show you even more detestable sins than these. He brought me to the north gate of the Lord's temple, and some women were sitting there weeping for the god Tammuz. Have you seen this, he asked, but I will show you even more detestable sins than these. And then he brought me to the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple, 
At the entrance to the sanctuary between the entry room and the bronze, bronze altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary of the Lord. They were facing east, bowing low to the ground, worshiping the sun. The fact that they had their backs toward the altar is significant. They turned their back on the true and living God, and they were worshiping the sun. Have you seen this, son of man, he asked? Is it nothing to the people of Judah that they can commit these detestable sins, leading the whole nation into violence, thumbing their nose at me and provoking my anger? Therefore, I will respond in fury. I will neither pity nor spare them. And though they cry for mercy, I will not listen. The holiness of God is nothing to be trifled with. There is one God, and he is inflexible when it comes to who is to be worshipped. And the Bible tells us that there is one problem. The people that you talk to who do not believe in your God may tell you that there are many problems. I feel bad about myself. Things aren't going well for me financially or in other ways in my life. I have marital problems and so forth and so on and so on. And it is not at all that the Bible does not reflect those kinds of problems or how we should address them. It just says that there's no problem bigger than our sin problem. Back to Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. And if you remember the story there, you know that God had placed Adam and Eve. He'd made them perfect. He put them in a perfect garden. He offered them a perfect life. He simply said, just don't eat from that one tree. And they did. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, I'm in Genesis 3, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, and so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And this was the beginning of sin. And this was the beginning of death. And make no mistake about it, the biggest problem in your life and in my life in the world is not sexual immorality. It's not lying. It's not theft. It's not political upheaval. It is the fact that we choose to worship someone other than living God. And obedience is part of that worship. Adam and Eve chose to worship themselves. Remember why they picked the fruit? It says when Eve saw that it was beautiful and it, was, it looked like it would be delicious and it was good for gaining knowledge and wisdom, she decided that she would pick it because that sounded better to her despite the warning that God had given them. Sin is ultimately self-worship or worship of some other God. There is one problem, and it is sin. And when we talk to people who are of the conviction that many roads, many paths lead to God, we want to try to get them to understand this broken relationship that we have with God, the sin problem. And maybe we can even ask something like, don't you feel 
Don't you feel guilt when you violate some internal code that you have? Whether it's rules that you grew up with or whether you instinctively recognize that this or that is wrong, don't you have a sense of guilt? And if so, where do you think that comes from? Why do you think that's there? And who do you think offers a solution for it? And maybe ask them, don't you answer to authorities in other areas of your life? Don't you answer to the police? Don't you answer to the courts? Don't you answer to the IRS? Don't you answer to a supervisor at work or a boss? And if that's the case, you answer to them for your work and for your conduct, even for your worship. Might it not also be true that you answer not to a variety of gods, a smorgasbord of gods, but one God? There is one God. There is one problem. And there is one solution. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one blank between God and man. There is one what? Mediator. One mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Only solution to bring sinful man and a holy God back together again is Jesus Christ. Back to the elephant parable. So the Raja points out that if the blind men all get together, they each have a piece of the puzzle and they can figure it out. If you've known this parable, did you ever wonder why didn't the Raja tell the people, why didn't he tell the blind men what the elephant was like? Or even more important, what if the elephant could speak? What if the elephant could speak? Because the parable is designed to portray God and that everybody knows a little bit about God and if they get all their uh, puzzle pieces together, they'll have a full picture of what God is like. But what if the elephant could speak and could tell the blind man what he's like? And we would say, yes, the elephant has spoken. And if he has, what else matters more in life than this? If we are wrong and all faiths end up at the destination, then we can relax, fold up our tents, bring our missionaries home, redirect our dollars, and teach our children to, do, uh, to pray nothing more than God bless mommy and daddy, God bless sissy and Nathan. They don't need to develop a concern for their neighbors, their classmates, their cousins, or the nation's. But if this is right, if the elephant has spoken, and there is only one elephant, then we need to rally the troops and hand out Bibles, storm heaven with prayer, more and more make the plight of those out there as concerning as my hobbies, my trips, my entertainment, my exercise. Because people of no faith or people with the wrong faith really are stuck with their problem. Most of them unaware that the only solution is Jesus. And we are his ambassadors to let them know. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters first and foremost this morning. Because we live in a stew of other faiths who are as 
diligent many times of trying to persuade us that either ours is wrong or at the very least, ours is no better than anyone else's. And when we're bombarded with those kinds of arguments and that just that kind of that staccato, uh, repeated staccato, if our faith is not built on solid rock instead of sand, we'll go under. And we'll be doing a podcast someday about the deconstruction of our faith. And so I pray for the kinds of things that will build stability and good footings into our faith nourishing ourselves in the word and and meeting you privately in times of prayer and meeting with the saints in times of prayer and meeting together with the saints for times of worship like this having conversations with brothers and sisters that we can be an encouragement to one another and being willing to read books not only the ones that reinforce our faith, but even the ones that challenge them so that we can know where the weak spots are in our faith. I pray first and foremost for us. And then I pray for the kind of boldness that comes out of that. Ambassadorial kinds of boldness where suddenly our neighbor Cindy is not just a nice person that we enjoy being around someone that needs Jesus and we realize that we've been put in the spot close to her for a reason and then we pray for our world who has been seduced by the wicked enemy of all of our souls telling lie after lie lie built upon lie until they can't discern the truth. And we pray for a great moving of the Holy Spirit that will be um, carried out through the movement of your people, not away from lost people, but toward them with a great solution to their sin, Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.